You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, thanks for listening. It's Friday, September the 3rd. It's a very pleasant, warmish, early autumn morning here in TW11. What's coming up today? Well, we round off the show as we do every Friday with James Willoughby's look at the Thoroughbred Racing Commentary Global Rankings. And he tells you why essential quality keeps chiseling his way up these rankings in the same gritty, dour manner that he's fending off all comers in his races after his success in the Travers last week. I talked to Newmarket-based trainer William Stone, who recorded his biggest career success yesterday in the Dick Pool at Salisbury. And the first part of a new series, Charlotte's Down at Watership Down Stud tracking the preparations for the yearling sales as horses head to Tattersall's books one and two. Looking forward to that first part of six, but first of all, important news, where will Poetic Flair run? Will he run in the Prix de Moulin uh, on Sunday or will he run in Leopardstown's Irish Champion Stakes uh, next weekend? His trainer Jim Bolger spoke to me just a little earlier and this is what he had to say. Uh, well, I've, I've uh, got the weather forecast for the week and while it's going to rain, I don't think uh, that uh, it would be enough to, to produce soft ground. So uh, I'm taking the chance, and at this stage, we're saying we're going to Leopardstown. So do you, you have to take him out of the Moulin? Would you have had to declare for the Moulin today if you'd wanted to run? No, we can, we can take him out of the Moulin today. Okay, so he's... He, he, he's been taken out as we speak. How tempted were you to go to France? Because I, I was talking to you earlier in the week and you were kind of edging that way. Uh, yes, because I thought, well, maybe uh, Leopardstown might get more rain. But uh, I'm reasonably uh, satisfied now that uh, the going would be okay at Leopardstown. Do you think you're going for the tougher of the two races with him? Oh, I'm not thinking about which is tough, uh, Nick. Um, I'm I'm just uh, going for which race I think suits best on the day, and uh, I'm not concerned about who goes where. Uh, I'm only concerned about the going. So, so you you made this decision irrespective of potential opposition in in either race. Uh, exactly. Yeah. So what is it that makes you believe that 10 furlongs at Leopardstown is going to suit him better than a mile at Longchamp? Um, I can't be sure that it will, but uh, weighing up all the considerations, uh, it's been fairly easy for me uh, to opt for Leopardstown. Okay, go go for it. Just, just put some meat on those bones for me. Tell me why. Well... If you want to look at the financial side, uh, the, the winner in Longchamp would take home about 250000 which is not inconsiderable. And uh, at Leopardstown, it would be uh, almost 700000 I reckon. So uh, on that alone, uh, I'd be, as somebody who has to uh, 
uh, run the sport com business in in a reasonably uh, financial manner, uh, Leopardstown makes more appeal. Uh, Leopardstown is home as well, and uh, we don't have to spend eighty grand on an airplane. So, uh, you know, for that reason, uh, Leopardstown is a no-brainer. But then I had to consider the going. And they, they are the only considerations. I'm not concerned about who else is going there uh, as long as there's room for us. Home, I thought, was the interesting word. Isn't, isn't there a sense of prestige as well? I mean, if the Irish Champion Stakes is a great race, not just in Ireland, but it's a, it's a great race globally. It has a, it has a certain it's, prestige to it. It's, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's been the best mile and a quarter race in the world in the last number of years. I can so, I can hear I can hear my phone about to ring with William Darby on the other end of the line on the other end of the line. Well, William is a fine fella, but he doesn't have the best mile and a quarter race in the world. Um, most importantly, have you got the horse in as good shape, better shape, shape that you want ahead of what I think is going to be his most important race? I sure, this fella wouldn't know how to be in any other shape, only top shape. I mean, that's the sort of horse he is. Um, he pulls out with his tail up every morning and it doesn't matter if it's the day after the race, he's still the same. Oh, you, you, just, you, you just couldn't give him too much. You've trained enough good milers who you've gone a mile and a quarter with. Some it's worked spectacularly, others it's worked less spectacularly. How confident are you that a mile and a quarter will be as good for him as a mile? Well, I won't be confident until after Saturday week, but... Uh, I'm reasonably sure, uh, by the way he was coming home in his mile races of very fast pace, that, uh, that he will stay the extra two furlongs. I mean, if you look at Ascot, for instance, uh, a record time for the race, uh, even, even, even faster than the great horses that have won us in the past, uh, including Frankel, um, he 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 didn't seem to be stopping as he as he approached the line. So uh, I'm I'm reasonably confident that he will get the trip, and uh, if if he doesn't, so be it. Well, Messrs. Haggis and Hannon are dancing a jig, knowing that they don't have to to beat Poetic Flair on Sunday, and everybody is very much now looking forward to the the Irish Champion Stakes. Jim, thanks for chatting to me this morning. Yeah, can I just say to us? <laughs> Mr. Haggis, as you call him, um, uh, he wouldn't have he he wouldn't have been too concerned about who turned up either because uh, I'm sure he feels the same way about his horse. And from what we've seen, he's entitled to feel that way. But uh, it would have been interesting, and sure, maybe we'll meet at Ascot. Yeah, yeah it's entirely possible because if you. Yeah. If if you do go to Ascot, do you think you would cut back and go and go to the QE2 rather than the the Champion Stakes? Uh, he's not entered in the Champion Stakes. Is he not? <laughs> no, no. Uh, he he he's only entered in the mile. Well, that that's that's answered that one, Jim. Thank you very much. Good luck Saturday You're week. Very welcome. Right, Jim Bolger there. Lydia's been listening to that. Lydia, what are your thoughts? So many, so many different thoughts. First of all, let's concentrate on the race 
the race themselves, the race choice themselves. I've always thought that Poetic Flair was worth a go, stepping up to 10 furlongs. He looks a very strong stayer at a mile, but until you actually do it, you don't find out, do you? I mean, you take a horse like Kamiko, who they tried in the Derby, they tried in the international stakes, he turned out to be what he, he hinted he might be, which was a, a bang miler at the start of the season in the 2000 guineas. I think there is a bit more scope with Poetic Flair. I think he's more brilliant. Uh, I like, like his consistency and it sets up one hell of a horse race. I mean, it's really exciting between him, St Mark's Basilica and Tanawa. Is it the harder option? Is he being braver? Depends on how you look at it, isn't it? In terms of a, a horse race... Yes, I think so. I think, you know, looking on paper, you're, uh, you're, you'd be facing uh, Baid, who, you know, hasn't won at even Group 2 level yet. Um, Snow Lantern, who is very good, um, but is clearly also beatable at Group 1 level. Uh, Poetic Flair um, has, has already um, finished in front of her. Um, at in the in the Sussex Stakes, I'm, I'm, I know there are reasons why Snow Lantern probably didn't give her best running, but there were also reasons why Poetic Flair didn't, and so both of them not getting ideal circumstances. Poetic Flair beat her, so clearly the easier, the lower hanging fruit to my mind is potentially that Group One, albeit that Jim Bolger clearly has a great amount of respect for Baid, and I too think that he he is brilliant, but that is not proven as things stand. It is uh, Poetic Flair who has won uh, two two group ones as things stand and Baid has not yet run a group two switch over to um, the Irish champion stakes and obviously you've got proven absolutely world-class group one horses in St Barts Basilica and Tarnawa to face however being also the, the flip side of that coin is that being beaten particularly if going down very narrowly to either one of those horses or even even both of them is less of a potentially less of a damage to the reputation if you're thinking stallion wise uh, than clearly uh, being beaten by St Mark's Basilica and Tanawa than uh, it, it looks better than being beaten by Baid um, and Snow Lantern as things stand. Um, although, albeit that I'm not saying that he would get beaten. Although I mean, Jim was quite clear there that his motivation was a ground based and b it's it's home and it's lots of money and that's kind of quite compelling reasons really isn't it 750 grand versus 200 and the fact you only have to go up the road absolutely i take all of those points as well i mean i suppose it depends on how you see uh adding a another group one to your portfolio uh, a potentially easier one than putting yourself into a harder race i mean you're you're widening um poetic flair's appeal as well if he proves himself to be top class over 10 furlongs and you're right you know much easier to go just down the road less stress of traveling and clearly a lot more money on the table and you know that I think people increasingly as a result of COVID I think it it meant that connections took a step back and started looking more closely at the prize money that different races were putting up and uh, it is right that uh, a, a race that is invested in to the degree that the Irish champion stakes is um, garners a, a field worthy of that kind of purse obviously I'm going to have to take issue as I, I'm going to play the part of William Darby right now is, is that all right with you? <laughs> I know he's a keen listener, so. <laughs> well, William, as you will have been shouting at the podcast only a few moments ago, um, obviously in a COVID-affected year, 2020, the IFHA uh, World Rankings, so the International Federation of Horse Racing Authorities, uh, their, their objective rankings of the 2020 races around the world put the International Stakes Act York in first place and the Irish Champion Stakes in second place. In 2019, 2018 and 2017, the best race in the world was the ARC. The International was in the top 10 and the Irish Champion Stakes was not. Point of order. 
Well, of course, it might be that Jim's prophetic here because if you get poetic Flair, Tanara and St. Mark's Basilica all lining up in the same race, it might land up the back of 2021 as, as the best 10 furlong race in the in the calendar at any rate. Let's talk about the French race, the Prix de Moulin this weekend. And another point to note here, Lydia, and only one of these horses, last year's French Guineas winner, Victor Lodorum, actually trained in France. It continues to be an issue for France and it's, it is a perfect storm in many ways because whilst they are uh, again, uh, being rewarded for the amount of uh, prize money on offer in their best races. And that will be attracting the best horses from around Europe. Hence, we've got a German train runner, um, two Irish train runners and two British train runners up against a sole French train runner. And they are getting the reward for that. However, at the same time, their home base is not particularly strong. And this has been the case for a while now. And as I've said before on this, these podcasts, that is an issue for Europe as a whole. What we actually want in Europe for the European pattern is for all of the major countries, and in this case they are um, Ireland, France and Britain, to be uh, punching their weight. And we don't want any one of them, for whatever reason, to be out of kilter with the, with the others, because that is bad for us collectively. You want the best horses in Europe running in the best races, those races being funded well, and you, know, you, want, you don't want one set of populations being particularly vulnerable or another set of, uh, because of, of prize money or quality of horses. Well, the Dick Pool Stakes at Salisbury has grown in, in standing quite significantly over the last few years and is now a, a pretty recognised trial towards some of the Group 1s at the back end of the season. It was won yesterday by 28-1 to one shot romantic time in the hands of Holly Doyle, giving trainer William Stone a really significant milestone win in his career. William's with me now. Um, William, just, just tell everybody what, what yesterday's uh, success signified for you and your team. No, it was, it was lovely to, to have, have a little horse that um, came to us and uh, you, you're breaking in a, a, a yearling and you really don't know don't know what the horse is going to be and um, for, for the horse to turn out like that is uh, very satisfying and uh, fantastic. And she's she's a, a nicely bred filly. She's from the first crop of, of time test, but from the family of Top Tug and many other horses that, that the owners have, have done really well with. Uh, how did she? How did she end up with you? Um, by fortune, really, I think, as uh, the owners send several horses to Sir Michael Stout, and she she was very small, and um, they just sort of felt that um, she'd be one to send to me. And uh, with her pedigree, we were obviously expecting her to want to want to trip. So the idea was to sort of break her in, and then maybe give her some time. But uh, as, as we got to know her, we really found her quite fast um, and thought we'd better get on with her and, and run her in some of these early five furlong races, um, which she obviously won a couple, um, but obviously has the class now, I think, to, to stay further. She didn't just win yesterday. She, she won really quite, quite convincingly. Uh, how excited are you about the, about the autumn with her and where do you think she could end up? Well... <laughs> I'm, I'm for, well, unfortunately, because we didn't really know that she was definitely going to stay or or be good enough to win yesterday, a, a lot of the um, big races have sort of closed and um, to supplement would cost quite a lot of money, um, which I obviously need to speak to, speak to the owners about. Um, but yeah, it, 
it's really how much uh, how much it would cost to get her into the Rockefeller or something like that um, as to as to whether they'd go for that. And, and do you feel that, given her size, you need to strike while the iron's hot, or or do you think she could keep improving into into her three year old career? She surprised you already. Yeah, I mean, we, we we don't know. She is she is very small, but she's very very tough. Um, so so yeah, uh, you know, you you just have to have to hope that um, she she'll keep progressing. But yeah, time time will tell. There's no way of really really knowing that. And I I was listening to you with with Lydia yesterday on on racing TV. I I hadn't sort of really realised your your journey to to training pattern race winners on the flat. It was it was via uh, point to pointing and and training under a under a permit, just training your family's horses. W- was it always the intention to to get to this point or the desire to get to this point? Yeah, no, obviously, dream of getting to this point and probably never thought we'd would get this far but um uh, yeah it, it's sort of uh, it's been quite a le- quite a learning curve from um sort of being from a very agricultural background to um to to trying to train a racehorse uh, takes takes a little bit of uh, getting used to but um i've been very fortunate with some good su- support from owners and, and good staff that are help- helping and uh yeah, no, it's all all been coming together well. What what's been the biggest culture shock for you along the way? Uh, I, I, don't, I, I don't know whether it's just, it's just very it's, it's very very hard work and non and non stop seven days a week. But yeah, and it, it, it you need you need a good team behind you to, to help you. And you and you say that coming from an agricultural background, where you're not exactly renowned as uh, as being afraid of hard work. No, no, but um, but this this has this has been, and I've I've had to fund the racing business on the back of um, still running an agricultural business as well with hay and straw. So um, when the when the sort of horses stop at lunchtime, it's then back to back to farming and. Um, and the nights can be quite quite long, so uh, yeah, it has it has been hard work. Has it been worth it? Yes, I think so. After after yesterday, yes, definitely worth it. So um, that's great. Are you, are you dreaming a little bit? You seem very down to earth, but are you dreaming a little bit about where she might take you? I I, I am. But I suppose I suppose I suppose going there yesterday. I, you sort of I. I hoped she'd show show what she did, um, but I suppose you, you've just got to keep your feet on the, the ground a little bit. That you know, if you do go into one of these um, higher class races, everything's getting getting tougher and tougher, and um, just, just hope she's good. She's good enough, but uh, she certainly tries hard enough. Uh, William Stone there. Lydia, you were at Salisbury yesterday. It was lovely to see uh, this diminutive two-year-old post a, a really important performance for a small yard. To his point about where she's going to go next, are we forcing trainers' hands and owners' hands too soon by making them enter horses in two-year-old races when they don't know what they've got on their hands? Ooh, this is a conversation that actually I know is, is being had in the industry um, currently. So um, well, races do close very early. I think I'm right in saying they close even earlier in Ireland, but the, um, the forfeit structure uh, and payment structure is, is different. Um, I think it's a conversation worth having. Having obviously, 
um, there would be uh, an impact if you if you didn't have a large number of horses uh, being entered in a race uh, a long way in advance of a, of a pattern race, um, as opposed to a smaller number of horses being entered closer to the race. You'd be in the second scenario, you'd be asking the connections of those horses, that smaller group of horses, to pay more in order to be part of that race. Of course, the counter argument to that is that nearer the race, they are more likely to know what they have, whereas further out from the race, they are guessing and the the, the conversion rate I suppose from those horses that are entered a long way in advance to those that actually run I mean you would you would imagine that the longer the entry stage is from the actual race the less likely you are be going to be converting a, a large number of those horses from entries into runners but of course the prize money is scheme are in Britain is very much built on that and you wouldn't want to have um, a issue whereby um, whereby uh, races uh, purses are affected by something that for the absolute right reasons are are, are done to, to help um, smaller scale I mean essentially it would be smaller scale trainers so I can understand so you know you've got this this very good horse in your yard you're not sure exactly how good this horse is because it, you know it's a, it's unusual to have a horse this good or you, or you don't have a good crop that, that that year you have a small number of horses and you find out through racing that horse that you have got a very good horse you haven't entered him or her up at all um and this is the case this is the scenario that we're in with romantic time you know she's not in the phillies miles she's not in the Rockfell um or or the chiefly park or or anything like that so i can understand that when then as a smaller scale trainer or owner, you look at the supplementary uh, um, fee and the size of, of that fee to get into those races and think, crikey, that, that's a lot of money. Um, similarly, earlier in the season, when you were not entering for those races as a lesser price, you were thinking, that's a lot of money when I don't know what my horse is. So I, I, can, see, I can see pros and cons. I can, I can understand it. Um, it is something that the industry is going to have to discuss. Nice card at Ascot today. Not for top, top class horses, but for, for nice horses. Field sizes? Yes. Field sizes? Yeah, field, field sizes there and yeah. at Haydock. You know, uh, yeah. we continue to be beset by small fields. And as I understand it, the conversation about having 10 race cards is still not off the table. You know, that is fixture inflation by, you know, any other name. And I have to agree with Patrick Leach, who you had on the podcast earlier um, this year, I was interested by his proposed solution, but in terms of the premise, that is that uh, we are in danger of turning off our fans um, and our punters who who greatly fund this sport by consistently having two small fields. You know that they they're not fun to watch. They're not fun to get involved in from a betting wise. They are not paying their way in that kind of way. You know we are going to be turning people off in the medium to long term if we continue to persist down this line. And you know we're going to have the fixture list published at any moment. You know you would hope that there is no fixture inflation, but the number of race infl race inflation that is not off the table. It is fixture expansion by another another name and those people within the organizations in, in horse racing you know if they object to this idea and I know that plenty do well they need to let their organizations know and from the organizations point of view those in charge of those organizations who have the power and are talking about this kind of thing and I'm thinking about 
all the various horsemen, the breeders, the owners, the trainers, the jockeys even, but also some race courses as well who, who might feel, feel differently and, and not think that 10 race cards and proliferation of races to go down. You need to, they all need to remember that when they take, take these positions of power at the head of these various organisations, they are also taking on a huge amount of responsibility for the future of this sport. And the, the danger at the moment is that they are pri prioritising short-term game for their members ahead of the medium to long-term health of the sport and history would not look kindly on that. Now in the run-up to the Tattersall's Book 1 and Book 2 yearling sales at the beginning of October, here on the podcast we've been granted exclusive behind-the-scenes access to Watership Down Stud to see what goes into preparing their draft for the biggest day in these young horses' careers so far. So over the next six weeks, we'll be hearing from vets, from farriers, from feed merchants, from bloodstock agents. But first of all, let's meet the senior management team. In a moment, you'll be hearing from stud manager Terry Doherty. But first of all, general manager Simon Marsh explains to Charlotte Greenway how they select which of their yearlings go to the sales and which ones stay at home. Basically, with Watership Downs, our own horses, um, we basically sell the colts and race the fillies. Um, but then we have a number of clients here who um, might race or, or sell. And the process of um, whittling down the horses to which ones we're going to sell really starts from very, very early on, you know, when they're young foals. And um, we already kind of know basically where they're going to go, which kind of whether they're going to be a book one type yearling or a book two pretty early on in their lives. You say that you know pretty early on which yearlings will be heading to each sale, but what makes a book one horse and what signs are these horses giving you? The individual has got to be um, correct um, and it's got to be by the right stallion and it's got to have a, you know, top, top class pedigree. So you've got 19 heading to book one. Tell us a little bit about this draft and how it compares to previous years. I think it's a very, very strong draft. We've got some beautiful horses with top class pedigrees out of young mares, stakes winning mares. And I think as a whole, it's, it's extremely strong. But I mean, Terry's been here from the very beginning and he, he's seen every draft of horses we've ever taken up to the sales. So Terry, you... You can say what you think about those. The yeah, no, I, I, do, I agree. I think we've definitely got a strong draft. It's cult heavy. We sometimes have uh, a, a number of fillies and we've only got a small number of fillies going to sales. But the individuals match their pedigrees, which sometimes is very difficult to do. And so we're six weeks away from the sale itself. So what has their preparation entailed up to this point since they came in out the field? They start off, we start off, when we fetch them in, we're very gentle with them. They've been in the field for uh, 10 months of their lives since weaning. So when they come in, we, we fetch them in, we gently start putting bridles into their mouths. We, we do their teeth, which is very important. And we start building their feed up and building their fitness up. There's no point fetching them in and driving them around, expecting them to do more than they're physically ready to do. So the initial two first couple of weeks when they come in, they get they come in, they get fed, they go out in the field individually. We split them up, put them on their own, um, and they go out in the field, back in, sleep at night, get used to just being coming into stables and changing their routine. Once we've got that routine changed and they're settled in their boxes, then we'll start increasing their workload and their feed. 
and just we're, we're just trying to build an athlete at that stage. Now, you've got different types of yearlings. You've got a showcasing, a speedy type and say see the stars, which, you know, is a mid- looking to be a middle distance horse. Do they go through the same prep or does it vary between each yearling? They go through the physical work in pretty much the same way, feeling slightly different. If you're feeding a bullock and feeding a little tiny deer, it's very different. Uh, but most of the horses uh, go through the same workload. Yes, some, some horses have to work harder to, to uh, gain the same uh, frame as something that looks an early type. So if you've got a two-year-old type, then it's much easier to work it quite quickly than it is to look uh, a classic distance three-year-old. And so we've just walked into the stable with a Dubawi colt out of bound who's heading to book one. He's from the family of last year's Derby winner Serpentine. He's stood under a blue light at the moment. You know, it's middle of the day. Tell us a little bit about this lighting system. Well, the lighting system here is a computerised sunlight daylight lighting system that we can extend the daylight. At the start of the day, they start off as if the sun was rising, they're red, and they go brighter and brighter as the day goes through. So by noon, they're incredibly bright and you don't really want to look at them. And then they drop down again and by nine o'clock at night, they're back to red. Um, But it's very important that the horses keep their summer coat. So what we try and do is keep them warm, keep them clean, but the light's one of the most important parts. And you can see next to that, there's another light system, which is an infrared heating light system. So if the temperature drops below 10, then we automatically put those on at night and drop them off during the day. They're rugged at night, but they're not rugged in the day because the coat needs to breathe. At the moment, they're in summer sheets, which are very lightweight. In another week or so, they'll change into heavier rugs. But it's very important to keep that summer coat because you've got to make it look like it's an athlete. It's got to be in the best condition it can be in the beginning of October. And many of these yearlings will never have left the stud and they're about to go to sales and be surrounded by hundreds of other yearlings and hundreds of people. How do you prepare them mentally for something like that? Well, we try and, and make life easy for them. We, we get um, quite a few clients coming in to do private viewings um, and we do yearling shows. We have a show green here. We try and expose them to what's, what's coming. We're never going to be able to do that. Uh, without taking them to a sale. But it, it's a very big ask for a young horse. They're only babies. And we, uh, we're we very lucky that we can um, expose them to private client shows. We take them for, for quite long walks around the farm. Um, we have a yearling walk and we'll do something different every day if we can. But we're never going to get them really ready for that initial shock of being in a yard of 40 horses and going for a walk in the pitch black at five o'clock in the morning. You've obviously got some lovely horses heading to the sale and some really exciting ones, but how important is it to manage everyone's expectations? Um, yeah, I mean, that is a that is an extremely difficult thing to do at the end of the day, but everybody is very hopeful, obviously, they're going to get the maximum amount for their horses, but um, there are so many hoops you've got to jump through to get that, um, that moment where you've got, um, you, you, you get a horse that makes a, a lot of money um, but um, you know you've got to have a horse that has clean x-rays he's got to scope well he's got to be very clean winded he's got to be correct he's got to have the right pedigree and then you've got to have a situation at the sales itself where 
you have a number of people who want to buy them and want to buy them at a value that the, the, the client or the owner might think, you know, thinks he's worth and wants to let him go at. Um, so I think the thing about it is one's got to be realistic all the time um, uh, about what these horses are worth. Um, there is a huge input that's gone into them in the stud fees are very, very high at the moment. And so, you know, to, to actually break even, you know, you sell a Dubawi to break even, it's got to make at least 300 because you paid 250 for the for the nomination fee. Well, there aren't a lot of horses that make over 300,000 in any year. Um, so it's extremely difficult to, 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 to get those individuals to, to be able to to actually make money for the clients. These are obviously an incredibly nice bunch of horses. Do you feel the pressure working with them and possibly more so the closer you get to the sale? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, these horses love to hurt themselves. It's part of a horse's uh, remit to, to, to do as much damage to itself as it possibly can. Um, so we spend our lives trying to reduce that risk. Um, I mean, even, even the, you know, you say, getting up to the sales, but I mean, even at the sales, when we're there, we've had various disasters where horses have either got injured in their boxes or they've got loose or, you know, something, you know, so until they get through the ring and the hammer goes down back and, they've, the and they're back in the box and they've gone and they've had their wind test and they've passed their wind test, it is not until that moment that you can actually say, right, the job has been done and that horse is away and he's belongs to somebody else. So this is quite a stressful time of the year. How does that compare to the foaling season, say, which must be incredibly busy? So what's the feel in the yard then? It's very different. Uh, foaling season is a much calmer. You've got to be calm when you're dealing with mares, heavy pregnant mares and foaling mares. It's a much calmer, much slower pace. Um, it has to be. Whenever you walk in a box and the mare's having a foal, you've got to be calm. So everything just slows right down um, for the mares. It's a very different type of stress. You can be absolutely cooking inside, but you've got to prove to that mare that everything's absolutely fine. She's not in trouble, you're not in trouble. But if you have a problem when you're folding, believe me, it's a problem. Charlotte Greenway reporting from Watership Down Stud, and you'll be able to hear more of that tomorrow. And next week, I will be speaking to Agent Charlie Gordon Watson, who's been down to inspect the Watership Down draft. Right, it is Friday, so it's time for Thoroughbred Racing Commentary's Global Top 10. Movers, first of all, before we get into the Top 10, coming out of Saratoga's big day last Saturday, Latruska up 14 places to 25, Gamine winning machine up 4 to 13. And right on the cusp of the top 10, the very talented Jackie's Warrior up 4 to 12. Essential quality up 2 to 4. Here we go with the top 10. 10, Chronogenesis, the mayor from Japan. 9, Gran Allegria, her compatriot. 8 is Snowfall. 7, Tanawa, bound for the Irish Champion Stakes. 6, down 1 is Adar, inactive since the King George. Down 1, Golden 60. 11 for 11 in stakes races and could have a Japanese date on the agenda, according to trainer Francis Loy. Expect the comeback soon. Up 2, essential quality after victory in the Travers Stakes. 3 is Mishrif. 2, St. Mark's Basilica going to Leopardstown next weekend. And number one is Palace Pier. James Willoughby, essential quality. The rankings love this horse, but he keeps making heavy weather of defeating inferiors. Why has he gone up to four? Because the pair drew clear. And as I've written this week on thoroughbedracing.com, 
The top American horses are now distancing themselves in the three-year-old division from the rest. The form is working out extremely well. If you look through the top races there, we've got four or five horses who are clearly elite. And the runner-up uh, there, Midnight Bourbon, of course, was previously third in the Haskell Invitational at Monmouth Park. And the winner there, or rather the first pass, the post there, Hot Rod Charlie, had previously been second in the strongest piece of American form in any division, the Belmont Stakes, run at that furious gallop and won in gritty fashion by essential quality. Now, Nick, I've heard it said that essential quality is not the type of horse to win by very far. And whilst I feel that's true, I think one reason for that being underestimated generally is how good the opposition are. Because like I said, You've got what I call is a Frankel effect. When Frankel was around, the great galloper over here, you could see that whenever he beat a horse, when he wasn't around, that horse beat everything else. So you had this hierarchy that built itself around him. And you have a look now at these American three-year-old racers. You can see exactly the same thing. Essential quality wins a race. He beats a horse. And when he's not there, that horse franks the form. Look back at the form of the juvenile. Look at the form of the Kentucky Derby when he was wide on the track and probably the moral winner. It all stacks up so well and everything points to this horse being amongst the global elite. It's just, we can't place him any higher. Look at Mishrith's form. Look at the way St. Mark's Basilica beat Mishrith when they met at Sandown Park. And then our idea of the world number one, Palace Pier, because apart from that one slip at Ascot when basically the ground was nigh on and raceable this is a winning machine a consistent winning machine who deserves to be regarded as the non-pareil for now until his colors are lowered just looking at some of those other winners from saratoga jackie's warrior who beat life is good who posted a remarkable performance in defeat gamine who is a winning machine and latruska would i be right in thinking that latruska's got the most potential to climb because it may be that she goes to the Breeders' Cup Classic, therefore she's going to take on a better pool of horses. You'd be absolutely right about that. And I think not, not just the destination of her at the Breeders' Cup, but also her talent, because I don't know about you, but watching that race, there were two or three times when I thought she cannot win this. She went so hard, not just to start with, but in the middle part of the race, she had to fight off challenger after challenger. She looked beaten early on in the, the straight. And I think the two horses that she beat... Bonnie South and Royal Flag are real improvers, as Dunbar Road is a fairly solid horse that was fourth. I thought she won that in great style, and I think she's open to running bigger figures still. And as you quite rightly indicate, she's potential to rise significantly. Why does Adar keep gently slipping down the rankings in spite of not doing anything wrong? Yeah, well, that's the, the, the very reason, ironically. The fact is he's not doing anything at all He's been idle since the King George. He's been set up for races later on in the season, the Ark Trial and then the Ark. And, and whilst you said, well, look, that's not that long since the King George, is it? Quite a lot has happened around him. We've seen Mishrif come out. And Adayar, he has only won two group races. Golden 60, the Hong Kong star that's a, pl a, point, a place above him, he's won 11. Essential quality has now won seven. Palace Pier, six. St. Mark's Basilica, four. Tarnawa, an eight. Gran Alegria, the Japanese horse, seven. 
Chronogenesis 6, these horses have done it multiple times. We just need a little bit more convincing about Adayar. Impressive Derby win, but what did he beat there? The form is limited by the, the second horse so far from what we know of him. And then the King George, undoubtedly a stellar performance. But we need to see the consistency that the other horses at the top of the chart have shown time and time and time again. Here at thoroughbredracing.com, it's the depth of a horse's CV, as well as its height, that counts towards its ranking. So James, Jim Bolger has told us that Poetic Flair is going to run in the Irish Champion Stakes against two of the top ten, Tarnawa and St Mark's Basilica. Now, Poetic Flair was nudging the top ten himself at one point. Um, how is this going to impact these rankings, this three-way clash? Well, Poetic Flair has the most to gain and Tarnawa and St Mark's Basilica the most to lose. But the reason for that is that I think that he's running into a very difficult spot here. I don't really see the angle of Jim Bolger in running against these two proven top-notch horses over a trip which his horse is unproven over. Thanks to James, to the team at Watership Down, stud to William Stone, to Jim Bolger. Now, before Lydia gives you tips, Lydia has already been harder at work as part of the panel that has decided the shortlist from which you can vote to see which sprinter joins Frankel and Lester Piggott in the Kipco British Champion Series Hall of Fame. You can either vote for Black Caviar, the brilliant Australian sprinter, Deja, the shadow jumper, Lock Song, the flying filly, or more style. All of these possessed blistering pace and reached extraordinary heights on the race course and have made significant contributions to British flat racing from 1970 onwards. Now, you can decide which of those four go in. So if you're screaming at your device now at the mention of one of those or clearly feel that another should be the, the entrant to the Hall of Fame, then get voting because your vote counts. And you can vote online at horseracinghof.com horseracinghof.com and here is Lydia again with a tip or tips for today yeah it's, it's a bog off day uh, buy one get one free uh, if you go with uh, Miramichi in the 110 a Haydock this is also actually tipped up on the podcast before he's looking for a five timer I still think he is very able of winning off his current mark I think the danger is probably Bake stepping up in trip um, but I think that Miramichi continues to be for some reason underestimated he clearly won with something in hand last time so he's the tip in the 110 at Haydock today and tomorrow in the Old Borough Cup I'm going to go with the horse that funny enough I tipped last year in the podcast and he last year he was looking like he wanted to step up in trip and actually revealed himself to be um how shall I put this politely somewhat wanting in a finish um and uh this season Eve Johnson Holton has applied headgear to Noble Masquerade and that has yielded two wins from his last three starts and and now I think he is ready to step back up to 14 furlongs and back up in grade for the Old Borough Cup. So it is Noble Masquerade in the 255 at Haydock on Saturday. Lydia, thanks so much. Thank you for listening. Thanks to all my guests. Don't forget, Charlotte, I'll be back with you tonight for the Saturday edition. And we'll be back with you on Monday. See you then. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.